But today, we're going to be continuing our look through and our study of the doctrine of God. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about God's incommunicable and his communicable attributes. And this week, we're going to continue discussing God's communicable attributes. And we're going to be focusing on two specific attributes, his holiness and his justice. But by way of review, I do want to just go back and just re-explain the communicable attributes itself. So if you recall, God's communicable attributes, those are his attributes that, um, the attributes of God that bear some resemblance or analogy with us as men. Now, if you remember, when we talked about God's incommunicable attributes, I had noted the fact that those are the attributes of God by which there was no resemblance within us. So in other words, those were the attributes of God that distinguish him as God and we as creatures itself. And within the communicable attributes, you know, the, the difference there was that those attributes demonstrated that we were created in his image. Although those attributes are different in us than they are in God, there is an analogy. There's a resemblance there within those communicable attributes itself. And last Lord's Day, as I said, you know, we talked about two specific categories. We talked about his wisdom and his power. And if you recall, within those attributes or those categories, as described within the shorter catechism, we discussed his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his sovereignty, and his will. So this week, as I uh, mentioned, we're going to be focusing on two. The next two, as defined in the shorter catechism, which is his holiness and his justice. So what do we mean when we say holiness? What are we talking about here? So by holiness, in particular, God's holiness, what we mean is that perfection of God and virtue through which he eternally wills and maintains his own moral excellence. Now, when we talk about the holiness of God, I want you to understand this from a twofold perspective. And by that, what I mean is, you know, I want you to understand it, one, from an intrinsic standpoint, from the standpoint of the purity of God, the fact that God is eternally and infinitely pure. As 1 John 1 verse 5 tells us, in him that is God, there is no darkness at all. Or in Habakkuk 1 verse 13, we see the prophet saying, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So we understand the fact that God is God. In him, he is eternally pure, morally pure. And we understand that. But the other aspect of God's holiness that I want us to understand is that it refers to more than just his moral purity, but also his majestic transcendence over creatures. And to kind of emphasize that, I want, I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 3. I'll read it and I'll explain this. So in Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we read this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full 
of his glory. So in this passage here, in this vision that Isaiah has, what we see and what we notice is the Lord on his throne and the angels around him worshiping him. And what I want to point to and highlight in this vision is those seraphim, the angels themselves. You know, with two wings, their feet are covered. With two wings, their eyes are covered before God. Now, mind you, these angels are sinless creatures. So in, in one aspect, they are pure. But yet, before the holy of holies, before God himself, they have their eyes and their wings covered. And that speaks to God's transcendent holiness. Robert Raymond puts it in this way in his systematic theology. Now, when Isaiah saw this awesome scene and heard these four creatures singing, he was immediately struck with his moral impurity. But what is often overlooked is that the seraphs are sinless creatures, and yet in the presence of God the Son, they feel it necessary continually to cover themselves all over by their wings. Clearly, for them, his holiness was his separateness from them due to his transcendence over their creatureliness. Mind you, even in the garden, before Adam and Eve fell, there was still a transcendence there. Adam, although he was without sin, was not still holy in the same way as God. And even us, when Christ returns, when we're in the new heavens and new earths, and we're no longer sinning, we're still not going to be holy in the same capacity as God because God is transcendent. His holiness transcends us. So God is not like us. I guess it's another way of me saying this. And it shows in his transcendent holiness. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2 tells us, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So again, God his holiness is far beyond us in the sense that obviously morally he is pure, but even transcendently he is distinct. Now, this attribute of God's holiness, similar, but not exactly, but similar to his incommunicable attributes, they actually help to qualify those other attributes. By that, what I mean is in God's knowledge, he is holy. In his justice, God is holy. In his power, he is holy. Everything that God does, because he is holy, therefore is holy. Gerhardus Voss, in his biblical theology, he puts it in this way. Holiness is something coextensive with and applicable to everything that can be predicated of God. He is holy in everything that characterizes him and reveals him. Holy in his goodness and grace, no less than in his righteousness and wrath. Well, then that raises a question, because if you if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned how God's incommunicable attributes help to qualify those communicable attributes. Well, if holiness does the same thing, why don't we place holiness under God's incommunicable attributes? Well, if you remember the definition of communicable attributes, those are those attributes which we bear us some resemblance with God in. And when we look through the scriptures, one of the things that we do note is that we are called to be holy. 
So Leviticus 20 verse 26 tells us, thus you are to be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. And we see in 1 Peter 1 verses 14 through 16, Peter writing, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So holiness is an attribute that we bear some semblance with, although, obviously, as I mentioned before, not in the same capacity. Because with God, we know that God is infinitely holy. He is eternally holy. He is unchangeably holy, where we are not. The next attribute that I want us to, to look at after holiness is his justice itself. The Puritan Thomas Vincent defines justice in this way. The justice of God is his essential property, whereby he is infinitely righteous and equal, both in himself and in all his dealings with his creatures. God's justice is based on his righteousness. When you look throughout the Bible, what you'll notice is there isn't too many times where justice is mentioned that righteousness also isn't or righteousness isn't mentioned or is mentioned, you know, whether it's explicit or whether it's inferred. A couple of examples you see in Genesis chapter 18, verses 18 through 19. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And then we see in Psalm 33 verses four through five, the psalmist writing this, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. And one more, Psalm 89 verse 14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. There are plenty of other verses that highlight kind of that connection between righteousness and justice there. But then I think you're seeing what I'm trying to get at here. So thus, if we want to truly understand justice, biblical justice, we need to understand God's righteousness for it's his righteousness that's the basis for how he executes justice. So if that's the case, so what do we mean when we talk about righteousness? We mean that perfection of God by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness and shows in every respect that he is the Holy One. So we see within righteousness, there is basically that connection, not just to justice, but also holiness as well. So it's actually very fitting that we're talking about holiness and righteousness because they do kind of blend together in many different ways. And because God is infinitely holy and transcendently holy, that does mean that his standard for right and wrong are certainly much higher than our own standard for righteousness because God is immutably holy 
That also means that his standards do not change and are equally applied itself. It doesn't matter when it comes to God's holiness, his righteousness, and his execution, his justice. It doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're black, if you're white, if you're male, if you're female. God's righteous standard by which he executes his justice is the same. It's universal. We see in Psalm chapter 9, uh, verses 7 through 8, the psalmist telling us, but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And then we also see in Psalm chapter 96, verse 10, the psalmist saying again, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, this brings us to an important point that I do want to just quickly make note of since we're talking about justice. And that's in particular what justice is not. Obviously, you have to be living under a rock to not hear the term social justice be thrown around all the time, whether it's unfortunately some people within the church or people outside the church. And when we, and although that phrase social justice has the word justice in it, it's not typically the type of justice that we see truly being um, talked about from a biblical fashion in the scriptures itself, at least not how it's understood by modern culture. Now, Although justice rightly applied will have social ramifications, they will have societal ramifications, and what's often implied by social justice today is a sort of this quasi-Marxist type revolution in which true justice favors the poor and disadvantaged over and against the wealthy and the privileged itself. But you know, when we look at God's justice, as we see in the scriptures, what we note is that his justice is impartial. It doesn't look to skin color, to wealth. Now, I want you to contrast that with how so many people today, you know, what they demand when they say, we want justice. When justice is called for, they're not asking for equitable treatment, but favorable treatment. For example, a few years ago, after you know the you know Harvey Weinstein um, you know fiasco and the Me Too movement, and, and that recently with Brett Kavanaugh, you heard this slogan: "Believe all women." But the problem, obviously, with that is if we follow that line of reasoning, true justice typically may not actually take place. Why do I say that? Because Women sometimes lie. I know it's kind of crazy or wild to, to say in our modern culture, but that is certainly the case. And if that is true, if you have a woman that's lying regarding an accusation, and then we believe all women in the name of justice, what's actually happening there? Is injustice, because the person who was accused is now assumed to be guilty and is punished on the basis of a false allegation. Every time whenever I hear the phrase believe all women, I think back to, you know, Emmett Till, 
you know, the young black teenager back in the 1950s who was accused of raping a white woman. I'm sure if he was alive today, he probably wouldn't be all for believe all women since that's what got him killed. Now, to be fair and honest, some will say that justice has been unevenly distributed historically. And even if we grant that, even if we say, all right, we'll give you that, that does not mean that justice now means to tip the scales in favor of the oppressed. Justice rightly applied does not care for wealth, does not care for social status, does not care for you know, what gender you are, none of that. And when we see passages that talk about special care and rights for the poor, for the oppressed, for the widowed, God is not implying that justice should be tipped in their favor. And this is what so many people misunderstand when they read the scriptures. Rather, God is stating that in executing justice, justice should not be swayed away from them. So in other words, not be tipped in the favor of the privileged or the rich. In other words, like we saw, justice should be equitably applied. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15 tells us as such. It says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. So you're not to show favoritism to the poor, nor show favoritism to the rich. Judge fairly. All right, well, JP, then why are there so many passages that talk about us caring for the poor and the oppressed and the widowed if we're not supposed to favor them? Well, you know, just like in our time, where unfortunately, bribery can have a lot of influence in what takes place, sometimes, or back in that day too, you had instances and cases like that, where if someone was wealthier, they may be able to influence judges. And as a result, in the scriptures, we see the emphasis being made so that true justice isn't improperly applied itself. He wanted to remind the people that justice is to be equitable. John Frame, in his systematic theology, he says it in this way. But of course, the problem in Israel was not that judges tended to favor the poor, but they tended to favor the rich. So God emphasizes justice to the poor. Simple as that. God wasn't saying to tip the scales in favor of the widow or the poor, but rather to make sure that you're equitable. You're not showing favoritism one way or another. And true justice, God's justice, is equitable in that way. And so I wanted to point that out because obviously in our day and age, this has truly, truly grown. And obviously in light of, you know, what just recently, or I guess it didn't really recently happen. I guess it happened two months ago, but the video of um, the, the, the guy who, you know, was shot while running, you know, running rampant. We're going to hear these type of talks again in regards to what true justice is. And it's so important for us to, to, to remember what the Bible actually says so that we don't fall into this emotional trap and then start calling for injustice in the name of social justice. So within the right and biblical understanding of justice, there are two distinctions or aspects that I want us to, to look at. First, you have what's known as God's rectoral justice. Now, rectoral, that word comes from the Latin word rector, which means one who rules. And being that God is the one who rules, God is the one who obviously is our king, is our Lord. 
and rules over all creation, as such, he's the one that gets to set the rules. He's the one that establishes the laws that we follow. So God's rectoral justice means that which is concerned in the imposition of righteous laws and in their impartial, not partial, impartial execution. We see in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, Isaiah writing, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. So because he's our Lord, because he is our king, he's the one who is also our lawgiver itself. And it's upon that fact that God is our rector, our king, that he gives us the laws that we are to follow and obey. And the other side, the other aspect of this, God's um, within the aspect of justice, is what's known as God's distributive justice. Now, this aspect of God's justice deals with the manifestation of the distribution of rewards or punishment itself. You know, in other words, true justice also means that good is rewarded and wrong is punished. We see in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, Paul writing, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. And then in verse 9 and 10, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So God, being a just ruler, will render to each person according to his deeds. Now, within that you know, lane that we're in, talking about God's distributive justice, there are two forms of that. We have what's known as this, it's always hard for me to say, even practicing it, remunerative justice. I always want to say remunerative, but I don't think that's an actual word. Remunerative justice and is retributive justice. So when we talk about God's remunerative justice, what we're talking about there is God's manifesting himself in the distribution of rewards for obedience. Psalm 58, verse 11 tells us, And men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. So God does reward the righteous. Here's the problem, though. None of us are actually righteous. When you look at Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it tells us as such, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So because we all stand guilty as sinners before God, it can be argued that the distribution of rewards really is an expression of God's divine mercy and love because God is dealing out his rewards not on the basis of strict merit because if that was the case, none of us would deserve anything good. Lewis, I like how Louis Burkhoff puts it in his systematic theology. He says, God's remunerative justice is really an expression of the divine love dealing out its bounties, not on the basis of strict merit, 
For the creature can establish no absolute merit before the creator, but according to promise and agreement. Now, the other side of that is God's retributive justice, which that deals specifically with God inflicting penalties due on us for disobedience and that being an expression of his wrath. Now, everyone is owed this because we have all disobeyed God. Like Paul told us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, there's not a man on earth who is righteous, yet he never sins. No one can stand before God and make the claim that they are pure and without sin. And therefore, God, being a just God who sets rules for us to follow, must punish us and though all of us who violate his laws, his rules. And what is the punishment for that? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now, I really want, and I would encourage everyone to truly just take the time to think through everything we've talking about here in regards to God's holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. Because I truly believe that if you sit and ponder some of these things that we're talking about in regards to these attributes here, there will be some humbling realizations. The first, when you ponder on God's holiness, his infinite holiness, what you will realize is the fact of how unholy we are. You know, we are far from pure when you gaze upon someone who is truly pure. Now, I don't know how what Isaiah thought of himself prior to the vision in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm not going to make any assumptions and say that he thought that he was, you know, you know, the most, you know, purest guy on earth or whatnot. But when he stood before God, when he, when he saw God in the vision, he said, woe is me for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. He realized the fact, standing before the holiest of holies, how unholy he truly were. You know, when we wrestle with the fact, and, and this is one of those things that a lot of people struggle with, you know, when you know of a person or a group or culture that, you know, they've died and they've gone to hell, never hearing the gospel, people struggle with that. But you, know, you struggle with that, quite frankly, oftentimes because those people are, you know, we're ignoring the fact of God's holiness in contrast to us. When we think of innocent children, you know, the only reason that we would call children innocent, one, is because you've either never had children, or two, because you're comparing children to adults and not to God, because children are not innocent relative to God itself. And when you think and ponder upon the holiness of God, you know, those things that sometimes we take for granted, or we don't really think through, will humble you. When you Think about when you ponder God's righteousness, God's justice, and what that magnifies, or at least it did for me, was God's mercy itself. And the why that the reason why I say that is when you think about his holiness, his righteousness, and the fact that we're to be punished for the fact that we are we violate his laws, the fact that we're still standing here and not dead speaks to God's mercy. I mean 
know, when we think about, just to give an example, when we think about a person who, you know, a person who raped and killed a young, a young teenage woman, immediately in our minds, or what we want is for justice to be done immediately. We want no mercy for that person. We want that person to be executed immediately. If we saw the person in our minds, in our hearts, there would be righteous anger. We couldn't even stand to look at that person who did that. We can't forget that God sees every single act that we commit, that sin in that life, actually sees it worse than that. But yet God still deals with us and withholds his judgment from us. I mean, I want you to think about that. If our most righteous acts are filthy rags before God, what does that say about our sinful acts? Justice demands that sins should be punished. But here we stand, still alive. Well, that speaks to God's mercy. But more so, and this brings me to the final point worth pondering. This also speaks to the necessity of a mediator. The only reason anybody is saved is because of the fact of Jesus Christ. Because if God must punish sin, then that means that our sins, our sins must be dealt with. If God rewards the righteous, how is it that we who are unrighteous receive any good from God? This is where Jesus Christ steps in. For in Jesus Christ, you have a person who never sinned a day in his life, thus making him righteous before God. And since he had no sin to personally deal with or atone for, that made him the perfect substitute for us. He willingly stepped in our place and received the punishment that we were owed. And because God was right, or Jesus Christ was righteous, that also means that his righteousness could be placed on us. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God took him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when we think about all that we've talked about today, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, it's definitely going to cause us to reflect on how unholy and how unrighteous we truly are, but it should ultimately cause us, the elect of God, to sing praises to God, who is merciful and gracious enough 
to send us his son. Like the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady writes, in thee we have a righteousness by God himself approved, our rock, our sure foundation, this which never can be moved. Our ransom by thy death was paid for all thy people given. The law thou perfectly obeyed that they might enter heaven. Well, this wraps up our lesson for this week. Next Lord's Day, we will conclude our study in the doctrine of God by focusing on the final two communicable attributes of God, which will be his goodness and his truth.